Well, good morning and welcome to Bridgewater. Uh, my name is Tim and I'm one of the pastors here. We are so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, but we have a, a newer guy on our worship team. His name is Keith, guy with a big beard. Um, he said in the first service he likes to be called Big Beard or Keith. Um, that's whatever you want to call him, but uh, great guy. I'd encourage you to get to know him. And uh, before we get started, I also want to remind us of some of the things we talked about a few weeks ago. A few weeks ago, we talked about the mission and vision of, of Bridgewater here. We talked about, okay, if we're going to make Broome County the hardest place for people to get to hell from, what would that look like and what is our role in that? And I gave you three things. I talked about three things I wanted all of us to do. Do you remember those three things? Sit close, park far. Okay, well, number one, you're, you're really close. Part number one is prioritize the mission of reaching others above our own preferences. I talked about these targets that we're looking at, and, and the first target is the brand new believer. We're trying to create an atmosphere that if someone became a follower of Jesus on Thursday, they would come here on Sunday, and things would, would connect for them. They would, they would say, oh, that makes sense. But secondly... You're on this. Number two is park or come early, park far, sit close, stay late. All right, we want you to come early. We want you to come early, engage with people, and we want you to park far so that when your friend, when your neighbor comes and the service is packed out, the best parking spot available is the ones that are right up front. We also want you to sit close. These front seats, those are all free. All of those are free. And we do that because sometimes this service can get really packed out and your friends or a family of four might show up and they'll, they'll come right on time. They're paranoid already. The music has already started and then they're not sure where to sit. And then Reed starts walking them up and walking them up and they're like, are we going to sit on stage? And sit close so there's some seats in the back so that those people who are brand new or haven't been here in a long time can come and sit, or they can sit together as a family. We're not like putting like two over there and two over there. And uh, lastly, I want us to be praying, praying, investing, inviting for people to come to know Christ, praying for more and better disciples. And I'm challenging all of us to pray, invest, and invite, and invite one person here every single month. So how are we doing with that? I just want to keep reminding us over and over and over again that this is the mission. This is what we're doing. We're trying to be intentional about making more and better disciples for Jesus. Well, let me ask you a different question. Let's shift gears. Have you ever been around somebody who makes claims? Ever, ever been around someone who makes really big claims and then you, you see the space that they've made the claim about and you realize... They were just talking, right? We probably all know somebody like that. When I was a youth pastor, there was a kid in my youth group, and he was a pretty athletic kid. He made a lot of big claims, and he played football, and he played basketball, and uh, when he would come to church and youth group, he would wear his, his high school football jersey, and he would talk about all of these big plays that he made in practice and these big plays that he made in the games. And he would go and he would talk and he would say things like, man, Tim, I am like the running back. Like I'm the best running back. Man, I just, I just ball out. And 
I, I, was, I was judging a book by its cover, and I looked at him, and I said, okay, he looks sort of athletic. He moves pretty well, seems to do well when we play games and activities in youth group. And so I was pretty excited for this kid, and I, and I loved hearing his stories about what he did in the games. And so I began asking him to send me his schedule. Like, hey, I want to I see your football schedule. Like, I want to I come to one of your games and then... A week went by and no schedule. So then the next week I saw him. I said, hey, how's football going? He would tell me all these big things that he did. I said, hey, send me your schedule. Like, I really want to come. And after a few weeks of hounding him, finally, he sent me his schedule. And I looked at the schedule and saw there was a home game. So I was like, sweet, I'm going to go to the home game. And I went to this home game, and it was bad. I mean, it looked like he was running in quicksand and there was a lot of fumbling and a lot of like falling over and a lot of this and a lot of that and and look I understand if that was me I probably would have done way worse I'm not making fun of anybody who's not athletic or can't play football but when you make a claim like that I sort of expect you to make a play every now and then I mean we, we all know this right we hate when people or companies or organizations make a claim, this product is going to do this, and then that claim doesn't line up with reality. And we see that all the time because everywhere we see something that is real, there's always a counterfeit, a counterfeit product or somebody who is faking it. And that also is true when it comes to Christianity. And James says, if we don't like people who make claims and can't back it up, why would we accept that in church? Because when it comes to our faith, there are people who are real, their faith is authentic, and then there's the fakers. And so my question is, do you know whether or not your faith is real or fake, and how would you tell? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. So go to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. I mean, how devastating would it be for someone to have come here week after week, hear God's word, begin getting involved in a small group, maybe even start serving and think that their faith was real, but then they find out at the end of their life that it's actually been fake. James has been talking about authentic faith. And he started talking about how do we live our life in the midst of trials and difficulties. God uses those hardships and those trials to mold us and shape us. And he says those difficulties will prove whether or not our faith is authentic. And last week, we talked about temptations, how James says that we're, we're drawn away, we're tempted, and we're lured away and enticed by the desires that are inside of us. And how we respond to those reveals our faith. And so James is now talking about another area. What is real, authentic faith? James chapter 2, verse 14. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text on the screen behind me. Let's go ahead and read this. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, 
but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. So James starts off, he says, what good is it? And that idea of, of good is the idea of it, it's profiting, it's gaining, it's accomplishing something. What does your faith gain if it's not connected to any action or fruit? Does it produce anything? Is it actually any good? And he talks about deeds and actions and works, all of those things. Those deeds, those are really a, a, an umbrella statement. It's talking about obedience to Jesus. That those deeds and our faith are not separated. They're actually connected. They're, they're tied together. James says you can't separate them because they're, they're so knitted together. So he's saying, can that faith, the faith that does not produce action, can that type of faith actually save anyone? And it's a rhetorical question, and the answer is a resounding no. That kind of faith that doesn't have any evidence, that doesn't have any proof, it doesn't lead to love or kindness, it's not real. It's fake. And so he's asking these two questions. What good is it? Can it save? And he's setting the rest of the agenda here. But notice what he says in verse 17. He says, in the same way, in the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by actions. It is dead. And then he goes on and he says, look back in verse 15. He says, suppose, suppose, just, just imagine that you are out walking along and you find somebody or you run into somebody or you see them at school or you see them at work and there's a real need. That they're literally without clothes and they have nothing to eat. Maybe the clothes that they have, the only clothes they have are the ones they're wearing today. And they haven't eaten at all. Not today, not yesterday, not the day before. And we walk by them, we see the need, we recognize the need, and what do we say? Oh, you know what? I'll be praying for you. I hope things go better for you. Have a great day. James says, what kind of faith is that? If you see a need and you actually have the ability to do something about it and you do nothing, James says, What's going on? You said you're a follower of Jesus. You've made this claim, but where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Where's the action? Where's the walking with Jesus? Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, in the same way, in the same way, he's introducing, here's the moral of the whole illustration. He's boiling everything down to this one thing, faith without action, is dead. That's what he's getting at. He's driving this home over and over and over again. And if you make a claim to be a follower of Jesus, and we looked at your life, and you looked at my life, and you said, hey, well, Tim, I don't see any action. When you walked by that person in need, 
and you just said, I'll pray for you, you didn't do anything. And I'm not diminishing prayer at all. Prayer is absolutely important. Prayer is critical to our walk with Christ. But what's more helpful to the person in need? Me praying for them or me actually going and buying them lunch? Maybe both. But if you're going to pick, go buy them lunch. If you're going to pick, go to Aldi or, or Wegmans and buy them a load of groceries and deliver that to their house. Because James says, Faith without any action is dead. And he's getting that love. As a follower of Jesus, my faith should compel me to love people more. It should, it should change how I respond to people. It should change how I talk to people, how I interact with them. So maybe you're at school and you've got your lunch and you know you've got your, your friend group to sit with. But you know also sitting in that cafeteria is somebody who's kind of a loner. Nobody wants to sit with them. Maybe they're just mean to people. Maybe they're hard to love. Maybe they're just kind of awkward. And, but what if you saw them, you saw that need, and you said, hey, I'm going to go sit with you. I'm going to leave my group of friends. And I'm going to go sit with you. Maybe at work you, you see somebody who just seems like they're having a bad day. Like it's, it's just all over their face. And you're like, but I got stuff to do. But what if I just went over to that person and said, hey, how are things going? Can, can I do anything to help you? What do you need right now? I don't know what the needs are. And over the weekend, we, we delivered these bags to these teachers at, in the SV school district, and we found out that there's, there's a need. There's more needs going on. That there's kids in the SV school district who need clothes, socks, and underwear, and sweaters, and things like that. There's a need that if we say, okay, we love Jesus, we're following Jesus, that faith should lead to action. And so he says, faith without action is dead. So James is not comparing works and faith. He's saying these things are together. They're closely knit together. And there's two observations that James makes about faith. Here's the first one, that fake faith is convenient. And it affects just parts of my life. If I have a faith and it's a counterfeit, it's only going to impact a small part of my life. It's not going to cost me anything. It's going to be convenient. I'm not going to go out of my way. It's only going to change just a little bit when I feel maybe convicted. But here's what James says. That real faith should radically transform our lives. So what parts of my life does my faith affect? Does it affect your words? Does your faith affect your actions, your choices, responses? How does your faith affect your life? We'll look back at verse 17. He says, in the same way, faith by itself Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. It's, it's by itself. True saving faith can never be by itself. It's always accompanied with action and deeds and words. It always produces obedience. 
it doesn't mean that I always get it right. It doesn't mean that I never sin. I mean, there are still times in my life that I wish I could go back and take a big giant eraser and just erase that action or, or, or delete that conversation or take back those words that I said. So I, I still sin. I still mess up. I still make mistakes. But hopefully, there's fruit in my life. That if you took my actions and you took my words and you took how I lived my life and you put those things on trial and you said, let's see if we can convict Tim of being a Christian, would there be any evidence to do so? So he says, if you just see people and you see the need and there's zero action, I wonder, is your faith in fact real? Is it authentic? When we see people who take, have those needs, we need to take action. But notice what he says in verse 18. He says, some of you will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. <laughs> That's awesome. But guess what? Guess who else believes that there's one God? The demons. And guess how they respond? They believe and they shudder. So what's the difference between your faith and the demons? Because they're going to acknowledge that there is one God. And they have this intellectual knowledge that there's one God and they're terrified of a judgment. And so they shudder. But they don't really walk by faith. They don't really believe that Jesus is their Savior. That information hasn't led to transformation. James is referring back. He says, they believe that there is one. He's referring back to Deuteronomy 6. Show me Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Hey, they believe that there is one God. But the rest of that verse says, we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. That, that belief should lead to action. It should lead to love and kindness it should lead to more obedience to Jesus. That when I see somebody in need, I go, okay, I see that. I recognize that. Let's figure out a way. Can we come alongside and meet this need? Is there anything we can do? Maybe I can't take care of everything. Maybe I can't remove this completely. But maybe I could buy them groceries. Maybe I could put gas in their car. Maybe I could take them out for lunch. Maybe I could just sit down and just have a conversation with them because that would be the most meaningful thing ever is just give them my time. So we ought to be thinking about not just pretending to follow him, but really follow Jesus. I think some of us are, are saying, you know what? God, I'm, I'm following you. But we're not really. We're like way back here going, I'm following you. Not really following. Because following him would, would lead to action. 
walking closely with him leads to change and transformation. So information is great, but that doesn't always lead to regeneration. It doesn't always lead to transformation. We've got to let that information go inside of us and radically change who we are. Look at what he says next in verse 20. Um, he talks about this one example of a man named Abraham. Abraham is all the way back in the book of Genesis. And God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham and his wife who are, who are old, like they're in their 90s old. They don't have any children. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. Now look, when you're 90 and you don't have any kids, the chances of you having kids are kind of slim. And God says, God makes this big claim. I'm going to give you children. And through this one child, Isaac, you're going to have so many children and grandchildren and great children. Abraham, you're not even going to be able to count them. And this is an old couple who doesn't have any kids. They could not have kids. Abraham believed that God was going to follow through with this claim. God does follow through, gives them this young boy named Isaac. They have a child. Isaac is, is growing up. He's probably in middle school. And God comes to Abraham and he says, okay, Abraham, I want you to take this boy and I want you to sacrifice him. And Abraham believed God. And he knew that God would either do something, intervene, or that if he did sacrifice him, he could bring Isaac back from the dead. So Abraham goes. He takes this boy to offer him. And just as he's about to take Isaac's life, God intervenes and he stops him. And he had incredible faith that led to obedience. Here's what James says. Verse 20, you foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James starts off and he says, you guys are foolish. You're, you're empty in your thinking because faith is never alone. Abraham obeyed and he was willing to obey knowing that that could cost him something. So when you follow God, does it cost you anything? Is it just about convenience? Because Abraham's faith led to obedience. God saw that obedience and he said, I am crediting to your account righteousness. That's what's going to make you right. It's your belief. That belief that produces obedience and action. And then James gives another example talks about this lady named Rahab. She was a prostitute, and she lived in the city of Jericho. And Israel was waging war on Jericho. 
and Israel sends in a couple of spies to go check Jericho out. They meet this lady, Rahab, and Rahab says, I believe in God. I believe that this land belongs to God, and he is going to take it. And they make a deal, and she says, I'm not going to rat you out, and I'm actually going to let you hide here and, and hang out here, and I won't tell anybody. And then she sends them in a completely different direction. She lies on their behalf and says, what spies? Never saw them. There are no spies here. And then because she believed in God, when they came, they took out Jericho. God spared Rahab. Take a look at what happens in James chapter 2, verse 25. He says, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So here's the second observation. Real faith is costly and affects all of my life. You see, a fake faith, a counterfeit faith, a counterfeit faith will only affect parts of my life will be really convenient, and it won't cost me anything. But a real faith, authentic faith, like Abraham, like Rahab had, it's going to cost me something. It'll cost you something to buy somebody a meal. It'll cost you something to buy them groceries for a week. It'll cost you something to put gas in their tank. It'll cost you something to... Take a stand for Christ tomorrow in school or at work. It'll cost you something to say, hey, I've been praying for you. I want to get lunch with you. It'll cost you something to say, hey, you know what? I would love to have you come and sit with me in church next week. It'll cost you something to take a stand in front of your boss and say, you know what? I appreciate what you do, but what you're asking me to do is not right. That's not ethical. It'll cost you something. Real faith, authentic faith, is always connected to action and love and kindness. And with that, it'll cost you something. Fake faith is convenient, just affects a little bit a part of your life. You know, um, a few years ago, there was a lady in West Hollywood who hired a restoration artist to make a portrait of a Picasso painting. It looked something like this. It's called La Femme au Chapeau Bleu, or The Woman in Blue. Way easier to say The Woman in Blue. So she said, I, I want you to make uh, a painting that looks just like that. She pays the restoration artist $1,000 to make that portrait, I could probably do it for much less. It actually ends up looking really, really good. So she takes the portrait and she sells it and she lists it. Now, an original Picasso would have been worth like $5 million. She makes up this story and she says, okay, because the painting came from the Malcolm Forbes family and they want to keep it all hush, hush, I'm going to give you a deal. I'm going to sell it for $2 million. Someone buys the painting. They spend $2 million on that because they believe 
it is an original Picasso. I don't know how you would feel when you found out it was fake, but I would be really frustrated. And so this lady who buys it gets a little suspicious after several years and then eventually has a Picasso expert take a look at the painting and they find out that the painting was only painted a couple years ago. How terrible would that be to have purchased something that you thought was real, you thought it was authentic, you thought it was worth double what you paid for, then you find out that it's fake. How, how terrible would it be to have gone through your life, come to church, maybe involved in a small group, thinking your faith is real, thinking your faith is authentic, only to find out that it wasn't. What a tragedy that would be. The point James is making is clear. True faith will show up in your life and it will change you. True faith will, will produce action. It will produce love and kindness. It will transform who you are. Authentic faith. It's about asking Jesus to be your forgiver and leader. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you always get it right. In fact, you don't have to be perfect because Jesus is perfect. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says that God made him, referring to Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that, here's the purpose, in him we might become the righteousness of God. You don't have to be perfect. You don't always have to get it right. But when you ask Jesus to be your forgiver, when you ask Jesus to be the leader of your life, he makes you righteous. God looks at you and he views you as righteous. You get a clean slate. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins, he died for my sins, and he took all of that pain, he took all of that punishment as if it was his own sin. God made him who had no sin to be sin for you, for me. So he could make forgiveness possible. Jesus took on your sins and he wipes you clean. John Calvin once said this, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Authentic faith, real faith will always produce action, will always produce obedience, will always produce love. But these deeds, they reveal the quality of our faith. Deeds reveal the quality of our faith, and we need to examine. We need to take an inventory. We need to examine ourselves. Here's what Paul says later in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, or chapter 13. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. That every follower of Jesus, myself included, needs to sit down and, and just examine myself. What's going on in my life? What's happening in my heart? 
And so we made this little diagnostic tool. It's a small little card. We want to give this to you on your way out. You can find this at the Welcome Center or on that black table on your way out. And there's two categories. One is Jesus, your forgiver. Second category is Jesus, my leader. And then within those two categories, there's a combination of six different questions that I want you this week to just take this card, spend some time, and examine yourself. Talk about it with your friends. Talk about it with your family today at lunchtime. Talk about it in your small group. Talk about it in your men's group, your ladies' group. But just take a moment this week. Slow down, pause, and examine yourself. Is Jesus my forgiver? Is Jesus my leader? If so, what does that mean? If not, I would love to have a conversation with you about what does that look like and how you can do that. Because real faith, authentic faith, always produces action. Let me pray with you. Father in heaven, we are amazed by your grace. We're thankful for this word that we find in the book of James where he challenges us, he pushes us to really consider whether or not our faith is authentic. I know there's a lot of people here who know you, who love you, and their faith really is genuine. I know there's also some people here, they're just, it might be their first Sunday, they're just checking this church thing out. They're not really sure about who you are, and I just pray that you would begin to work in their life. And I know there's also some people here who come here week after week after week, and they have a lot of information. They know a lot of things about you but you haven't yet transformed their life. I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to radically change who they are, that you would convict them if, if their faith isn't real, if it's lacking something. They haven't really trusted you as their forgiver. Pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand as we close with this last song?